Uh, We just finished up a sermon series on eldership. Uh, Before that, if you'll remember back, we we studied Matthew and we studied the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus was creating a countercultural community. A community that had different beliefs and practices from the religious and irreligious world around him. And so that, this countercultural community is a community that finds the good life in God's will and God's ways. And so I think naturally the next question to ask yourself is, well, what does it look like to be a countercultural community in this world? What does it look like to be a new community that Jesus is forming? And so to answer that question, we are going to turn to the book of Acts. And we're going to take a look at this countercultural community that God created, what it, what it looked like in the first century. We're going to study it, and hopefully it will help us understand what it looks like to be the church here today in our culture. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that you see is that uh, people and places and communities are often shaped by the stories of their founding. Uh, a book I'm listening to right now is called Boomtown by Sam Anderson. Uh, I really enjoy it. I enjoyed it so much that this is the second time that I'm listening to it. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a miracle that I read it the first time. It's an even bigger miracle that I'm reading it the second time. Uh, that shows you how good it is. But, but Boomtown, it tells the story of the 2013 Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team. So that's partially what I was interested in, right? And it parallels it with the history of Oklahoma City. So his chapters can kind of alternate between the thunder and the history of the city. And of course, he starts with the founding of Oklahoma City on April 22nd, 1889. Students, what happened April 22nd, 1889 in Oklahoma? Kind of a big deal. The land run. Exactly, yeah. So Oklahoma City was started with a land run. It was started with a boom, People came to Oklahoma in this big boom, thousands of people to do what? To create a new community. And what I think Anderson does throughout his book that's really interesting is he shows that all throughout Oklahoma City's history, this spirit of boom has shaped that city and that people. Uh, From building a grand canal through their city uh, to stealing the state capital from Guthrie. Yes, that actually happened. It was actually stolen. To building ornate buildings during the oil boom and then destroying them during urban renewal in the 70s. The spirit of boom continued to shape Oklahoma City long after the land run. Like Oklahoma City, the formation of the church in these early years has continued to shape us for 2,000 years. And so we need to look at its founding and ask ourselves, uh, how does that inform us and how does that shape us? Now, I think this is a really important question for us right now, not just for our church, but for the church in general, because right now there's a, there's a lot of distrust in the church. There's been leadership scandals. Um, there have been endless theological disagreements There's exhausting cultural conflicts. And I think that's left all of us sort of asking like, okay, what is the church? What's the purpose of the church? Is the church even good? And if the church isn't good, then is Jesus good? Is the gospel good? 
And so it's my hope and prayer that as we study the book of Acts, that this study will restore, first and foremost, our trust in Jesus and the gospel and the church. And then it will bring clarity to the beliefs and purposes and practices of the church. Okay, so that's the big idea. That's what we're going for, right? Restoring trust in Jesus and the gospel and the church and sort of clarifying what we believe and what we practice, okay? So the first question that we're going to address and we're going to talk about this morning is, what is the mission of the church? What is its mission? What is its purpose? Healthy communities, healthy businesses, healthy organizations, they all have a mission. They all have a purpose. And Jesus tells us, the mission in Acts 1.8. Most people would tell you this is sort of the mission statement, uh, the, the overall summary of Acts. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus told the early disciples that they will be his witnesses as he expands his cross-cultural kingdom. What does it mean to be a witness? A witness gives testimony to something they have seen and done and heard. So this morning, I want you to see that we can witness in three ways. We can witness to the truth of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and the sovereignty of the king. The truth of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, and the sovereignty of the king. Kids, as you're listening and thinking, maybe, uh, maybe think about some people that you would like to pray for, that you can begin to bear witness to the gospel to them. Okay? Uh, I'm gonna, th- we're going to be covering some large passages throughout this sermon series, so I'm not going to read the whole passage up front. What I'm going to do probably on a lot of these is break up the passages in the points. Okay? So just be prepared. A little bit different than I normally do. Okay? So... First point, the church bears witness to the truth of the kingdom, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first thing that probably jumps out at you is the first phrase here in the first book. This is a reference to the gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts were written by the same person, Luke, a physician who was a traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, It was probably written uh, between 63 and 70 AD. Okay, And Luke 1, at the beginning of Luke, 1 through 4, tells us that Luke wrote his gospel to give his friend Theophilus certainty about the things that he had been taught, right? So he's writing this letter, to the- this gospel to Theophilus. He wants him to know for sure the truth about Jesus. Uh, Luke says that there were, so there were these eyewitnesses that, that witnessed Jesus' ministry. They witnessed what he taught and what he did, and those eyewitnesses and that became ministers of the word, and the ministers of the word handed down that teaching to Luke and others. And they recorded it so other people like Theophilus and you and me could read it today. 
So the Gospel of Luke records all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke starts Acts by describing what Jesus did during the time between his resurrection and what we call the ascension. What was he doing? He presented himself alive to his disciples. He he showed proof of his sufferings. He appeared to them over 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom. So what what is Luke doing here in the introduction of Acts? He is firmly rooting the person and work of Jesus in history. Luke is a doctor, but he's also a historian and a theologian. He is giving people an eyewitness testimony of the life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus. Luke is saying that Jesus was a real person that really lived in history. He ate, he drank, he slept, he walked, he experienced all the sin uh, not all the sin, but he, he, he was sinless, right? He was tempted by all the sin in this world. He experienced the suffering of this world, just like us. Not only was he fully human, but he was also fully God. Luke wants us to know that Jesus suffered a real, excruciating, painful death. He miraculously rose from the grave, And then he mysteriously ascended into heaven, right? Luke is saying these are real things that people really witnessed and stories that that were shared and passed down that we've we've written them here so that you can know for sure that these things are true. Luke is giving us history. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is not just merely good teaching to make us better people. This is a real account of the life, death, and resurrection of, of the Son of God. So why is it important for us? It's important for us because it means, right, that we can know God, that the truth is knowable, that God is knowable. Okay, let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Is God real? Is God real? Is there a God that really exists? Is there a God that I can really know? Is there a God that really wants to know me? I think all of us have probably asked that question at some point, right? No matter whether you you grew up and you were religious and you were in the church, or you were irreligious and you were outside of the church, the the whole spectrum of people, I think at some point we probably all said, is God real? Right? Well, Luke wants us to know for sure, yes, God is real. That, this, that, that up in heaven, before the foundation of the world, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and God the Son loved us so much that he put on flesh, became a man, and lived among us. And he, he died, rose, and ascended into heaven so that we could know God so we can know that he is real, right? Now, we can't have a comprehensive knowledge of God. We're, we're finite creatures, and so theologians say that, that it, is, it is impossible for us, for, for us to comprehend God, but it is possible for us to apprehend God. That, that is, that we can understand something about God, 
And we can do that because God himself has come down and made himself knowable. And what God gives us to know him is not a formula. It's not a list of rules. It's not a principle or a law like gravity. It's a person. God gave us a real person. What did Jesus say about himself in the book of John? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We can know God because he's a person. He came and he lived in history. And as the church, it's our mission to make him known. To to share the world that there is a true God and that you can know him. That you can have a personal relationship to him. And it starts with us drawing near to him. As we draw near to God as we experience him in relationship, then we point others to him. And it's there in this relationship with Jesus that we experience the power of the kingdom. And that's the second thing we see in this passage. First, we see that the church bears witness to the truth of the kingdom. And second, we see that the church bears witness to the power of the kingdom. Look at verse four. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus told the disciples to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the same in substance and glory. But he's, but he's, a, he's a different person He has a different role, but but he's been promised to be given throughout the history of the world, right? In the Old Testament, the Father promised the gift of the Spirit in passages like Joel 2, Isaiah 32, and Ezekiel 36. John the Baptist promised that Jesus would give the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3. In John 14 and 16, Jesus promised that he would give the Holy Spirit to the disciples whenever he left, And now Jesus is telling the disciples to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if somebody was, if Jesus was telling you to wait, wait, wait for something that's been promised for thousands and thousands of years, what does that tell you about that thing? It's probably pretty important, right? Why is the Holy Spirit so important? The Holy Spirit is important because that's where the power comes from. Because it brings power. The Spirit has the power to reveal God to us and to help us understand God. The Spirit has the power to change our hearts so we can know God, obey His word, and bear fruit for Him. The Spirit has the power to inform us about the truth of God and to reform our lives. And the Spirit can do that because it's not a helper of a different kind. It's the helper of a same kind. 
because he's not just the spirit of God. He's the spirit of Jesus, right? And so this, this spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, is the spirit of Jesus that dwells in us and gives us the power to know God and to make him known. So it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we bear witness to the kingdom. It is the fuel in our tank. It's the catalyst of the spiritual chemical reaction that takes place in our lives. It is the electricity that drives the hard drive of our hearts. And we, we cannot begin to minister and witness without the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had trouble with your computer? Ever had problems with your computer? And then you call the helpline to ask for help? What is the first question that they ask you when, they call, when, when you call the helpline to get help with your computer? Is it plugged in? The first thing we have to ask ourselves when we need spiritual help is, is it plugged in? Are we plugged into the power source? You, you plug into the power source that is Jesus, and Jesus gives you the power of the Holy Spirit, and that transforms your life. Uh, there was a, a minister in the 1735, it's a long time ago, <laughs> And uh, he was a preacher of the gospel of a little bitty Episcopal church in Wales. Uh, and his ministry was dead. The ministry was dead. He thought Jesus was just a good moral person that came to make other people better moral people. And that's how he preached the gospel. And that's how he lived. And everything was kind of crummy in his parish. Nothing was changing. There was no spiritual life or renewal. Well, one day he went to hear another preacher uh, a man by the name of Griffith Jones. And Griffith Jones said, the determining factor in your relationship is what God has done for you, not what you do for God. And Jones, uh, uh, Rollins could not get that out of his head. And for a month, he kept thinking about that phrase. The determining factor is not what you have done for God, but what God has done for you. He couldn't get out of it his mind. And then one, one, one day during communion, he realized that Christ had done everything necessary to save him. And that truth became power to him. That truth transformed his life. And that truth transformed his ministry to that parish. And so we have to ask ourselves, Have we let that truth sink into our hearts? Are we, are we connected to the power source of the gospel? Do, do, we, did you, do we come here this morning just thinking, okay, I'm going to hear about everything that I need to do for God to make me a better person? If we came here and that's all we did, we would actually miss the gospel and we'd miss Jesus and we'd miss the power. What we've came here to do this morning is to hear about what God has done for us. And as we hear that, that's when our hearts are transformed. And then that transforms the way that we treat others. That transforms our witness. Uh, in, in 1859, there was a slew of conversions in Northern Ireland amongst prostitutes. And it, it baffled everyone. They didn't know what was going on. And so a reporter went there and he sat down with a prostitute and he interviewed her. And he said, what, what is going on? Why are we having all these conversions to Christianity amongst 
you and your friends. And she said, well, whenever the revival took place in Northern Ireland, the gospel swept through our area. And when the gospel swept through our area, business dried up. And not only did the business dried up, but people looked at us differently. And they talked to us differently. They were kind and compassionate with us. And that led us to the gospel. Think about that. The gospel transformed the hearts of the people in that area so that they were, they were pursuing sexual morality. They were pursuing Jesus. Their lives were being transformed. So their inner life was transformed. And that changed the way that they treated others. That changed the way they, they, they treated and they thought about these women. And it was that experience of the gospel that bore witness to the truth of Christianity that led to all these conversions. And that's, that's our mission, is to bear witness to that life-changing power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. It transforms us, and then it transforms the way we love and treat other people. So we have to ask ourselves, has the truth of the gospel brought that kind of power into our lives? Has it brought that kind of power into our prayer life? Has it brought that kind of power into our relationships? Has it brought that kind of power into our work? If not, what do you do? You don't pursue the power, you pursue the person of Jesus. You press into the gospel. You lean into him. You ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to know about you? What do you want me to know about myself and my sin and my brokenness? And what do you want me to know about the gospel? And as you press into that, the Holy Spirit works and it transforms you and it transforms the way you live and you love. So we bear witness to the truth of the kingdom. We bear witness to the power of the kingdom. And lastly, we bear witness to the sovereignty of the king. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So this passage describes the ascension of Jesus. Where did he ascend? He ascended into heaven. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read this passage a thousand times, and you just thought to yourself, oh, Jesus left. Jesus went from point A to point B. Jesus went from work to vacation, like I did last week, right? I went from Oklahoma to Kansas City. Nothing changed. I was just me in a different place, right? But something much more powerful and profound is happening to hear. Jesus is ascending He is taking his place on the throne. What what happened in in history this week? Queen Elizabeth II passed away, right? What happened after she passed away? Charles ascended the throne. He went from being a prince to being a king, and now he rules and reigns over all of England. What happened when Jesus ascended? He ascended to the throne, and now he rules and reigns over all of creation. He is sovereign. He's in charge. He's the boss. He is all-powerful. And, and when, we, when we bear witness to the sovereignty of the king, that changes the way that we see the world. 
We don't see the world as just a flat, one-dimensional, earthly place. We see the world as a place that is dynamic and three-dimensional with Jesus ruling and reigning over all things. He is in charge of everything. Your work, your play, your school, your neighborhood, your government, all those things. He's sovereign over everything. Uh, there's a, there's a, a great little story here at the end of this chapter. I, I'm not going to have time to read it all, but I just want to tell you this story because it, it, it demonstrates Jesus' sovereignty or God's sovereignty over all things. The, the disciples, uh, there was 12 of them. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas died. Uh, there was, then there was only 11. Well, the disciples said, look, we've got to have a 12th. Who are we going to get to be the 12th? They said, well, it needs to be someone who is with us from Jesus' baptism and a witness to his resurrection, right? So somebody who's seen the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. And they narrowed that down to two people. Um, and what did they, how did they just settle that decision? How did they pick? They flipped a coin. <laughs> they, they casted lots, the modern-day equivalent of flipping a coin. Now, why would they flip a coin for such an important decision? They knew that God was in charge of everything, even the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that. They knew the sovereignty of God, and so they made a decision trusting that God was in charge. Right? Do we know that our God is sovereign over everything? Uh, I was listening to a, a pastor preach on this passage this week, and he, he talked about a man named Michael Reeves, who's a theologian, uh, and, and Michael Reeves says, why do Americans fear more when they have less to fear? Americans lead the world in anti-depression and anxiety medication, despite being safer, healthier, and wealthier than anyone in world history. Why are we so afraid? And what is the remedy to that fear? It's not us, not what we've done. It's believing in a sovereign God who is ruling and reigning over everything. You see, when we lose God and we lose community, we lose an understanding of his sovereignty. When we regain our relationship with God through the gospel and we regain our community in the church, then that helps us regain this idea that God's in charge of everything and I can trust him with everything. So it changes the way we see the world and it changes the way that we see our work, right? Uh, Abraham Kuyper is a Dutch theologian. He's famous for saying, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is our sovereign overall, does not cry, mine. There's nothing, there's nothing in all the universe over which Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. If you're a financial planner, if you're a doctor, if you're a PA student, if you're retired, if you're in finance or photography or music or whatever, there's not a sphere over which Jesus does not say, that is mine. And so we can look at all of our work and say, how can Jesus transform my work in my world? Uh, so in the beginning of the 19th century, there was a lot of inequality, social inequality in both Britain and France. And in France, they had a very bloody revolution to try to settle that. Well, in Britain, something different happened. 
there was a great awakening. There was a mass revival of people that were converting to Christianity and coming under the power of the gospel. Uh, They estimate that one-sixth to one-fifth of the entire population of the British Isles was converted at that time. Well, what happened in the decades that followed socially after that? There were advancements in uh, medicine. They abolished the slave trade. They changed the child labor laws. And literacy increased all over their area. The gospel didn't just transform their hearts. It transformed their entire world. The rich, the middle class, the poor, all of them were transformed by the gospel. And so all of creation began to be transformed by the gospel. We witnessed the sovereignty over to the sovereignty of our king, and it changes the way we look at the world and our work, and it changes the way we minister, right? At the beginning of this, all commentators point out that that, uh, Luke says, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then also the word began is interesting, right? Because it's saying that Jesus began to do and teach something, But it didn't end. Jesus continues to do and to teach even now as he is ruling and reigning over all things. How does he continue to do and teach if he's not physically here? He does it through the church. And and, uh, John Stott says that if you were to to technically rename the book of Acts based on what uh, is taking place, he would say you would call this the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit, through his apostles. Jesus is at work in the church. And he is working through the church to minister the gospel in his name. And so we bear witness to that power. We bear witness to the truth of the kingdom. We bear witness to the power of the kingdom. We bear witness to the sovereignty of the king that he is at work in us, that he is at work in this world, as that we go out and we minister in his name, he transforms everything. That's our mission. That's our mission statement. That's who God has made us to be. It starts with us. It starts with having our hearts transformed by the power of the gospel. So, and, and that transformation takes place by repentance and by faith in Jesus That's how you become a Christian, and that's how you grow in your faith. So let's go to the Lord now in faith and repentance. Let's ask him to show us anything in our life that needs to be changed. Let's ask him to change it and fill us with the Holy Spirit so we can live on mission with him. Let's pray.